the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome again to the podcast. How are you, Lindsay? I'm doing okay. Yeah. How about you? I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm, you know, it's been a long week, but I'm excited to be talking about movies. This is for me a, a lot of times the one time I can just like push everything out of yeah. the rest of the world, and this is what we're doing: talking about movies. That's yeah. what we like to do. And uh, I, I want, you know, I'm glad we picked something that's like very seasonally appropriate a chilly movie still yeah still cold outside and this is one i do like the you know i like the shining fargo yeah uh movies i like to watch the thing movies that i like to watch mm. in the dead of winter oh the thing yeah really anything that's uh dark and yeah. gloomy and snowy yeah so we chose uh the coen brothers fargo 1996 uh, yeah. yeah this is yeah my favorite movie of 1996, but one of my all-time favorite movies and one of my favorite, I think my favorite Coen Brother movie. It was, it's a tough, it's I a, like. It's a pretty celebrated movie. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like the longer that the years go on that this, that this one can get uh, forgotten or just people don't go back and revisit it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this movie still holds up and is just as brilliant now as, as it ever was. Yeah. We'll be talking about Fargo, and then uh, we uh, do our picks of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, I chose Sam Raimi's A Simple Plan to kind of tie in with this winter uh, crime yeah. genre. Good choice. Good thinking. Yeah. And what was your pick? Um, well, I, I didn't. I went for a movie that comes out of California, um, but the Francis McDormand route with... Uh, and this is actually my... Probably the the newest movie we've ever talked about, like more in depth. Uh, yeah, I went a little bit over the two thousand. I went to two thousand two for. Wow. Uh, I know. I hope that's okay. Well, um, I mean, I, I did it, so I I wasn't able to stop you. <laughs> I went with two thousand two's Laurel Canyon, which stars stars Francis McDormand. That's a good one pretty entertaining yeah no i like it she can do no wrong kind of like sigourney weaver yeah i'll try to like not gush as much as i'd like to do about sigourney weaver but francis mcdormand's pretty great we'll see about that yeah we will see about that um (laughs) and we're also going to get a visit from one of our favorite guests here on don't push pause and that's justin hayward he's going to uh he loves fargo so i'm sure whatever he has in store for us to talk about fargo so happy to have him back. We're going to love. And then, as always, our Murray moment. So, for Fargo, lots of things to talk about. The most excited I've been to talk about a cast for one of the movies we've done. Yeah, it's really an ensemble movie, isn't it? It is. It's it's like... It's a strange ensemble movie because they don't really... The main characters, aside from two, don't really interact with each other that much. Yeah, and they really like set up an entire plot and story before they even introduce Francis McDormand. Doesn't come in until yeah. like twenty five minutes into yeah, the movie. Like, yeah, thirty minutes, 
33 i think i counted it and I texted, it? it's like 31 minutes or oh, something okay. but yeah jeez sorry <laughs> listen you've got to be really really exact when you're talking yeah. about francis mcdormand's entrance thank you um but yes i wasn't exact as you your accuracy and fact checking are undeniable but it's 31 minutes into I'm, the movie. you know what i don't know but okay. it's somewhere in the 30 well, range now you're backing down it's around thirty minutes. Um, excuse me. Um, <clears throat> uh, on the on the subreddit filter, uh, on the subreddit posting that I did, uh, it was actually uh thirty three point uh nine milliseconds. Was that uh, counting so, or not counting the FBI warning? You know what, Justin? I guess you're just gonna have to find that out for yourself. Yeah, maybe I will. Yeah, maybe you will. Uh, so, <laughs> we're talking about the splendid cast: Francis McDormand, Steve Buscemi, um, William H Macy. Uh, in a, in a great just bunch of and I think the Coens do this we'll talk about this like always using these little small big characters and getting like really realistic and great actors to to yeah. make even the smallest scene really rich yeah and hysterically believable yeah even with uh is uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right but is it Peter Stromar Stormare Stormare that's right um yeah, even his uh, character that has very few it's lines like of dialogue lines or something yeah. adds adds so much to it. <laughs> um, Fargo itself, there's things that the Coens do, but we'll talk about sort of the the style of the movie and the violence in the movie and the, the sort of like black humor that yes. can be you know this like uncomfortableness that sometimes you're laughing at uncomfortable scenes. And then the next time you're looking at r- really grotesque, violent blood scene. Um, but before we, uh, so we'll go into our first clip, but before we do that, as always, could you please set us up for Fargo? What is this movie about? Oh, let's try to boil this Simple down. Simple yet complicated movie. Yeah. So we have Jerry Lundergaard, who play, who's played by William, William H. Macy, he hires uh, two kind of hitmen, um, uh, Peter Stro- Stro- Stromare and uh, Steve-, Steve Buscemi, to kidnap his wife. And uh, there's a whole ransom thing involved. It's basically meant to extort money out of his uh, father-in-law. Things really don't pan out, as you might imagine. And uh, wife gets kidnapped. There's a whole mess of things that happen in between and then we have the introduction of um francis mcdormand's character 30 31 minutes in (laughs) yep 31 minutes 31.29 seconds in. uh we have the introduction of sheriff sheriff yeah she's sheriff uh marge gunderson who's played by francis mcdormand who uh tries to solve the mystery of three dead people in her town and uh how that links back how she basically solves the crime there's so much that happens in this movie and it is it it is just like a boiled down crime plot but there are so many offshoots and so many relationships that happen in this movie it's hard to just kind of boil down to like a two-sentence description um so we'll get into our first clip and then we'll come back get into fargo Okay, so we got a trooper pull someone over. We got a shooting. These folks drive by. There's a high-speed pursuit. 
ends here, and then this execution type deal. Yeah. I'd be very surprised if our suspect was from Brainerd. Yeah. And I'll tell you what. From his footprint, he looks like a big fella. You see something down there, Chief? No, I just think I'm gonna barf. Jeez. You okay, Margie? Yeah, I'm fine. It's just morning sickness. Well, that passed. Yeah? Yeah, now I'm hungry again. You have breakfast yet, Margie? Oh, yeah. More made some eggs. Yeah? Well, what now do you think? Let's go take a look at that trooper. So usually we uh, save the cast for discussion, too, but I'm feeling like we should just go right into the cast. Yeah. Such a huge part of this movie. Yeah. Because um, this is an ensemble piece. I mean, there really is, there's certainly a focus on different people at different times, like in a stronger mm -hmm. way. But we do, I feel like this movie seamlessly shifts from the characters' lives without us feeling like we've spent too much time away from a character. And I think a big part of that is like how we were saying before we were joking, but not introducing Francis McDormand in the very beginning, I think is very smart because not just ensemble pieces, but where they're following different characters in movies. Sometimes they're doing the intercutting so much in the beginning of a movie that you just never feel like you get to settle in one person. Yeah. In this one, we re they really settle in other people's lives and then, then we introduce the next character and then they sort of start to intersect. And it's, it's almost too like we're setting up the, for the crime to happen. And then we introduce the police officer and thus yeah. the investigation begins. Um, another thing too, is that, you know, this, this plot may be like pretty involved, although it is straightforward, but pretty intricate and, and involved. Um, I feel like above everything else, um, no matter how well the script is written and how well it's directed and how beautiful the film is, the the cast is the number one selling point for this, and that's who everyone is is so good at what they do, and it, they're what sells the movie. We'll start with uh, Francis McDormand because we're both huge fans. Happily, yeah. Uh, Francis McDormand. Um, worked with the Coens, married to a Cohen, mm -hmm. worked with the Coens uh, multiple times before Fargo in smaller roles. Well, her role in Blood Simple was pretty big. Um, smaller role in Raising Arizona. Blood Simple, was that her first movie? I believe that was, I'm not sure if that was her first, first movie, but definitely, if not her first. If, if it wasn't yeah. her first, then it was like, yeah, right around there then. Um, and great in that movie. And then, you know, the Coens and... Sam Raimi have a relationship for those of you who together and maybe don't know who Sam Raimi is. It's the director of Evil Dead, amongst a lot of other things. Yeah, <laughs> um, but he directed her in Darkman, and so they've you know had a mutual friendship with the Coens and Sam Raimi and Francis McDormand. Kind of like you know stayed with a sort of group of people, mm -hmm. like worked with friends. And Fargo was really like her huge breakout role and uh, won the Academy Award for the role and deservedly so. Uh, this is just one of the 
great performances and it really sneaks up on you yeah. the performance like <laughs> yeah. it's 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 upon multiple viewings now i can just sit down and watch it for francis mcdormand mm-hmm. but i don't think that i appreciated the nuances in her performance as much as i did until i saw the movie like three or four times yeah like i i can't think of um i mean when i saw this i'm fairly certain this was the first movie i had i had seen her in i know i'd seen dark man but i don't think it had registered that that was that was francis mcdormand um her performance in this continues for me to get even better because i keep noticing like little things and and what you know whether it's her accent or the way that she carries herself as as a pregnant police officer she's just so good at at being margie and margie that's her name god i love that yeah and why (laughs) she also has a ability to and i i feel like there's certain actors who have a very great ability to use props in their acting you know like robert de niro for example is great at like eating in scenes you know mm-hmm. um francis mcdormand has a way to whether she's eating or has something in her hand or she's like looking at her watch or like taking a drink she utilizes all these ways in a real natural way because i think it really it sounds like a little thing but it's huge to me i i think what what you're describing is is while she is acting she's She's just very natural at it, and she falls into this role um, with with such ease. And if I remember correctly, in reading um, how how she kind of felt about this role, she wasn't the most stoked about it at first. She was just kind of like a pregnant police officer. Okay, I was kind of looking for something more exciting. But then the more that she got into it. Um, really realizing what kind of a character this person was in that that the character is very simple in a lot of ways but she does have a lot of depth she's not she, she's not a dumb police officer she's the, well she is very simple she's very easy to figure out and also i think when you're an actor that might be kind of a dream to have yeah you know a, a character that's easy to figure out because you then have time to think about well Margie's gonna Margie's totally gonna do something like this and she's gonna um you know when she lays next to Norm in bed she's gonna cuddle up to him you know it's it's like you she just can fall into this role so easily when I I like her take on this role is like almost like like an understated Columbo so understated where you you, as a viewer don't get get on how sharp she is and how thoughtful really, she is and yeah. how dedicated she is. And then before you know it, you know, you're you're right there with her. Like you are admiring her skills as a police officer. It is really funny how you, you do think that about her immediately is that she's naive. She's kind of, you might even think that she's kind of ditzy or something. And maybe that's the, maybe that's, you know, being immediately hit with a, a thick, Minnesotan accent um you know maybe that's just like a the first reaction but it it's pretty soon like even in one of her first scenes um with uh we're watching it in the background right now with um her police officer counterpart you get how sharp she is pretty much immediately and also with the 
um, I think the Cohen brothers call it the uh, Minnesota, Minnesotan niceties or Minnesotan nice, where we see how sharp Margie is by when, you know, she's being put off by somebody that she's questioning later in the movie, um, how she's able to deal with that and still be real nice about it, but be real forward and be try to get her point across or try to get the answer out of whatever she's asking. Like you, you quickly learn that, um, how, how Francis McDormand plays this part is pretty sharp. Yeah. And I, and I feel too, like you, this could easily have been a role that could have been like taken way over the top, you know, especially yeah. with the accents and everything. And I feel in, it, it still feels natural. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm certain, you know, people in Minnesota might think it feels over the top, but you know, I, I never feel like they're they're trying to go in a direction that's like, you know, being um, parodying or like making fun of something. It's, it's definitely not a it parody. Feels very, yeah. It feels very genuine. And not everyone in, in the movie has as thick of an accent. I, no, yeah. You know, it's like it's it's McDormand and William H. Macy yeah, who are her, probably the... And her husband. And yeah. her husband, yeah. yeah. Um, but there are plenty of other people that have either a lighter one or no accent at yeah. all. So I think that also makes it feel a, a lot easier and also like it's not a parody. And I guess it should be noted this was a role specifically written for her. Mm-hmm. Correct, yeah. And I think as well as Steve Buscemi and Peter Stromer too. That's great. I think it's always yeah. awesome to hear like yeah. something was written specifically for someone in mind and then they took the role. With Steve Buscemi... Um, he had been in like movie Coen Brothers movies previous to this, and it had always been small roles, bit roles, and this was actually one that they were like, <laughs> "Okay, dude, we're gonna actually write a part for you that's gonna be yeah. way more of a significant role." Yeah, this is one of my favorite Steve Buscemi roles. Yeah, and there was uh, with uh, Peter Stromer who plays Steve Buscemi's. Uh, uh, kidnapper counterpart yeah. um, they had offered him a role in another film and he had turned it down or, or just it conflicted with something else that he was doing and he happened to be in a play um, later on with Frances McDormand and since she's married to a, a Cohen, to Joel Cohen they came and saw it, and they were like, hey, it's that Swedish guy. Yeah. And then Fargo came up, and they're like, are you going to turn us down again? you want to do this role? And he's like, yes, I'm going to do that. Yeah, every, yeah, everything is just it's pitch perfect. Yeah. And Steve Buscemi, I have to say, too, and there are plenty of little comedic gems thrown into this movie. Like I said, it's it's like we said, it's not a straightforward comedy it's not a straightforward thriller, but the little comedic things that are thrown in. One of my favorite is Steve Buscemi being talked about as, you know, he's kind of funny looking. Yeah. And he is a he is an odd looking. He is an odd looking fellow, man. But I think to his um, favor with a lot of yeah. movies that he does. Yeah. You know, it, it, it adds to his uniqueness. Yeah, especially I I always maybe with Fargo Fargo comes in second, but I think of him most notably I think in Ghost World for uh, especially for funny looking. Yeah, yeah, sort of like these desperate characters. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and uh, uh, last but not least, William H Macy, who uh, I was not familiar with William William H Macy at all. I saw this. Yeah. 
there's probably only about five movies that I went to see in the theaters like three times. And mm-hmm. Fargo is definitely one of those movies. And William H. Macy, I don't remember seeing him in anything and just like walking out of Fargo like, who is this person? <laughs> like, this is like yeah. this amazing performance. And if I read correctly, he like really like yeah pursued this role to like kind of a funny yeah, degree. Yeah, it's almost like a like a stalkerish degree. Yeah. Um but he he really, read for the role of like one of the cops, yeah. I think initially. And he really brings I think he really taps into the essence. It's like sort of like Willie Loman, Death of a Salesman character, like just this sort of He's pathetic. Yeah, just pathetic, you and know, and like he kind of sucks. Like he, he does suck and it's like you and that's <laughs> but I think that it's like this fine line of like you when someone's that this pathetic of a character Mm -hmm. you want to feel sorry for them Mm -hmm. but he also adds enough scumbagginess so that you can you're not taking pleasure in his desperate situations but it makes for entertainment because he's not this like oh he's such a nice guy and he's just like down on his luck it's like he's kind of like underneath you know just sort of like swarmy um, I mean, it's set up from from the first from the get go from the first scene. It's like st- when he's meeting with Steve Buscemi, um, and he's and he's like, "Okay, let me get this straight. You want us to kidnap your wife?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah. Like it's no big deal. Like yeah, it's gonna yeah. be fine though. It's totally fine." It's like, no, actually, dude, it's not fine. You want to kidnap your wife and extort money out of her dad? Like yeah. you suck. Um, and, and that he's, they make him a car salesman. Yeah. Um, just all these sort of things that make you, it's, and, and there's few movies where they just make me so squirmy. Like when he's just up against the wall. In, in the, in the final scene of him, when he finally does get caught for, for all of this, I think that's the moment when you really see how pathetic of a person he is because he's. He's such a coward. He's, I mean, all of this to, 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 like, the whole point of this is to get money to repay some debt or to get out of a situation that he's already in. And he obviously does not make good decisions. He's willing to put people he cares about in harm's way and really doesn't think it all through. And we see finally at the end just how scared and cowardice and what a what a little baby man yeah. he is. But it's funny though, he's not hateable. Like I don't that, well, that's I don't thing. hate that, him. Yeah, I don't hate him, but I don't feel sorry for him. No. Like yeah. sometimes you're kind of rooting for him a little yeah. bit, but you also you also don't want, you know, uh him to pull one over on Frances McDormand because she uh, above everyone in this movie, her character is the strongest one. It seems like all of the men in this movie are all kind of just, they're all kind of dumb. I mean, really. Yeah. Um, whether, I mean, even, yeah, William H. Macy, he's pretty dumb. The dad is just tunnel vision and kind of a yeah. jerk. And the kidnappers, they're really bumbling idiots. The only The only <laughs> guy that shows any sort of sincerity or... Dignity is her husband. Yeah, it's her which husband. Which it makes sense that they're together. Yeah, their relationship is so sweet. It's so sweet too. Yeah, so, I mean, it's uh, like like her character of Margie, like we said, is you know she's very simple and straightforward, and you understand who she is. You also see the how their marriage works 
how uh, yeah how their relationship works and to some it might seem mundane or boring but they legitimately care about each other you know when margie's going to another town on the way and she's going to stop and pick up some night crawlers for norm because he needs some night crawlers it's just um you know these little things that are thrown in whether the coen brothers you know throw that yeah. in or, or what it is it's it's just um well and i like her her encouragement of of so her husband's oh, like a painter he's like <laughs> painting this picture that he hoped that he's like submitting to be on the stamp and uh, he doesn't get the 25 cent, which was the, <laughs> you know, yeah. going rate at the time, you know, and, but he gets it and he gets the three cent and he's like, you know, it's just the three cent stamp. But, but she like <laughs> this encouragement that she gives like people need the three cent stamp, you know, whenever they do the switch over, you know, they need the little ones to like, to like use up the, use up the stamps, old ones yeah. you know and um and he looks at her you know and it's just like that's all the encouragement he needs like just that in her eyes you know he did something that was like worthwhile yeah you know and he's happy about it and that's to me is like the you can't get more sweet in a, like a relationship than that yeah their relationship is is so heartwarming margie and norm well, let's uh <laughs> let's uh stop there we'll go to another clip and then we'll come back we'll talk about some of the themes we'll talk about the coen brothers and uh, yeah, be All a right. good time. So that was Mrs. Lundegaard on the floor in there. And I guess that was your accomplice in the wood chipper. And those three people in Brainerd. And for what? For a little bit of money. There's more to life than a little money, you know. Don't you know that? And here you are. And it's a beautiful day describing this movie it's like it sounds very simple but there's all these intricacies that happen and it's almost like a game of chess and like power plays yeah and like yeah. This, these movements people making moves in every movement causes like an action and a reaction and generally it's something that ends in murder or like corruption the side of humanity that we know exists and that some of us might have a toe in but others like live in that world and they might be next door to you, might be your neighbor and you're like, Oh, I didn't know that they ran a dog fighting ring or they, <laughs> yeah. they were like, you know, did whatever, like these dark things like extortion. CD, yeah. CD, CD secret, the CD yeah. underbelly of society. Would say. Nefarious behavior. Nefarious behavior. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I mean, greed is definitely one of the biggest themes throughout all of this. Everyone pretty much except, uh, Francis McDormand's Margie is affected by it. You know, whether it's, um, I mean, number one, William H. Macy trying to extort money. It's the kidnappers trying to get money. It's every, everyone is motivated by the sense of greed in some ways. Like, like, okay. When I think of film noir, 
um i think of and maybe this was the time of like 40s but like guys in the i don't know are they fedora hats but like detective hats classic detective yeah hats. totally it's almost like uh the detective hats are like replaced with snow hats um and the typical like female character uh that's a that's a femme fatale um that's seductress that's actually like probably in on whatever seedy behavior it is is replaced with Frances McDormand who's she's not a seductress she's like the antithesis of, <laughs> yeah, yeah she's she's a, a woman in charge and she's pregnant it's almost like the Coen brothers took this idea and just kind of like tweaked a little tweaked some things and just kind of changed it around the idea of you know it being somewhat dark or or shot kind of dark like with the lighting when i when i think of uh fargo the color scheme of it is very like dismal and like very muted yeah, yeah. muted like sandy like grayish blue and brown and it's almost like a sepia tone or yeah. something like that which is kind of the same as film noir uh, and and also like a very this yes. is a movie that seemingly you wouldn't expect to be so violent and then there's like the murder of the cop and then like the wood chipper scene uh the violence in this movie Steve Buscemi gets half of his like gets a bullet straight through yeah, his shot jaw. in his face and yeah. uh the violence in this movie is very strong but it's played in a way that I think is warranted. You mm-hmm. know, it like really shows. Um, There's no glorification. That's yeah, for sure. it, it shows like you know if you're going to if you're going to go down this path, you know yeah. these dark paths. It it shows the viewer, the audience, the consequences, and yeah. like this real violence. This isn't like. Uh, a movie where you know the hero gets shot in the arm and he's just kind of like <laughs> it's a flesh wound you know like yeah. it, it, it doesn't even affect him you know he doesn't even like clench his arm and like oh and this one it's just kind of gross and Steve Buscemi's like holding his face and he's just like just gross and there's like bandages hanging off and not like even it, bandages just, they're yeah, paper, it's like towels. paper towels and it's yeah. like it makes it even all the more like just kind of nasty and disgusting. That's immediately what I think of is is where he gets, you know, a bullet straight through the his cheek of his face and you like okay, that that set up for him to continue on through the rest of the movie with half of his face like that. But, I mean, it kind of sets it up a little bit yeah. to be kind of funny, but it's so painful to yeah. watch him like take off the paper and, towel and, and taking snow and just kind of like compacting yeah. it into his cheek there's nothing funny about that it's just like ow you know yeah there's no glorification of violence so in in the Coens do that in quite a few of their films like violence is something that mm-hmm. again it's not a it's not like a like a scorsese type movie or like a tarantino movie where no. you know you're you're almost expecting the violence to come in Coen Brothers movies, it's almost like when the violence comes, even though I know that they're notorious for adding that into their movies every now and then, it still catches me off guard. Another thing I wanted to mention that the Coen Brothers are notorious for outside of bursts of violence in their movies um, is their willingness to trust an audience with their scripts. And I think Fargo is one of the best uh, versions of that. There's so much information given to you um, from scene to scene, 
uh, but they never really try to spell anything out for you. And there's one particular scene that I want to mention, I think is like the best example of that. Um, the scene is uh, when Francis McDormand uh, gets a call from uh, Mike Yanagita. Mike, Mike Yanagita, <laughs> an old uh, classmate of hers that she really didn't know that well in high school and, uh, you know, kind of calls her out of the blue, um, has been following the case that, you know, she's on and um, inevitably invites her to meet for a drink. I think they meet at like a Radisson or something. They just and, meet at the Radisson. And they, they got the best. You thought. know, and, and he is kind of like coming on to her in like a, you know, weird way. And he's like definitely socially awkward. And then kind of tells her that his wife has died. And we find out later that that was a lie. It's like this tiny scene that comes out of nowhere with like a character that doesn't come back. It Sometimes it seems pointless. You know, you're kind of like, okay, it was just thrown in there for humor, but it's, it's always there purposely calculated by the Coens. And it's there to let the viewer figure something out. And I think with his character later on in the movie, Francis McNorman, once she, once it's revealed that he lied to her, this like, she's, she's calling a friend and she's like, Oh yeah, this, yeah. Is, this happened with him. And, and she's like, Oh, basically saying it, that that was a lie. Yeah. And, told and, her. and so she realizes that like, if he could lie to her, then so would, uh, William H. Macy's character, you know, she kind of pieces it together. Like, mm -hmm. again, it's nothing that's like said out loud. Like the Coen brothers don't do that. They don't lay it out for you that clearly. And it's not something that I think, you know, with their movies, I have to watch them like three or four times and not yeah. because I think that they're so complicated or anything like that, but there, there are little things like that where they place these little moments in their movies Again, these plots seem really simple, but there's yeah. all these little things. And a, a, another example is I never, it took me three times to see this before I noticed that Steve Buscemi was bribing the cop. I like love that you has, pointed that out. I didn't he, notice that. I never noticed it. Out. And I never noticed why the cop was like, step out of the car, sir. And he's like, we'll just take care of this brainer. And he has like very slightly, it's like a quick shot. The cop there's asked a hundred dollar bill raised up out of his wallet. The cop asked for his wallet. Yeah. 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 In, in any other movie, the first line out of the cop's mouth would be like, are you trying to bribe me, sir? But the Coen brothers don't do that. They just mm -hmm. play the scene out. And it's so amazing because it gives the cop reason to ask him to get, step out of the car. And I, I, it's, ne it never dawned on me before you told me that. So when he says, you need to step out of the car, sir, every time I've seen it, I'm like, why did he have to, like, you don't need to actually step out of the car. Yeah. Like he didn't do anything. But the cop but sees the money and he doesn't call him out, but he's like, he's like, yeah, I'm not playing that. And I, there's all these little scenes in other Coen brothers movies where they, you know, not only do they choose to get very realistic, great actors for these little bit roles, mm -hmm. That you think are just like a tiny role. And it's like, to me, anytime I see a small scene in the Coen Brothers movies, that's where I'm like, now I watch the most closely. Because <laughs> yeah. I feel like if it's a tiny little scene, that's where I'm getting this like nugget of information, you know, or like I know that's like purposely put there. And I, that's where I think that they, they're they such great screenwriters and, and they have a, a love and a trust of an audience. And I think that mm -hmm. that's something that can really get taken for granted. I think a lot of movies you know, you're like, oh, well, it's like, you know, it's giving him everything. It's predictable, this, this, and that. And I think Coen Brothers movies, again, it's not like this, like, 
over your head. It's like pretentious. Doesn't seem like anything like that. It's just it's trusting an audience to learn, watch, focus, and really get something out of the movie. And it challenges them a little bit, but not in a pretentious way. Yeah, and I think the the challenging an audience is trusting them that they're going to figure it out. Because when you if you rewatch a movie where you're given you're just like straight up given the information and then this is it and there's no way you can um not see around what they're trying to tell you. There's no real mystery to it and it's just like one viewing and there's not there's no real depth to yeah. it and it doesn't make you kind of like part of watching the movie yeah and the Coen brothers definitely do yeah. that well we'll uh we should probably stop here Whew. get into our picks of the week <laughs> um is there anything else on fargo that you wanted to touch on before sorry i didn't mean to close this out before consulting no 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 i, I do we... that sometimes i don't mean to i think we i think we had much a good... respect Lindsay. just saying so you know. <laughs> I think we covered a lot of ground there talking about noir and the Coens and kind of uh, themes of, yeah. of Fargo. No, I, 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 I don't think it was premature. Okay, all right. Let's move on to our picks of the week. All right. I chose a, another snow-filled movie, A Simple Plan. You want to kick us off with that? I'll kick us off. Yeah. So Simple Plan was directed by Sam Raimi, um, like we said in the beginning, um, made a pretty big name for himself as the director of the Evil Dead trilogy and was also um, really good friends with the Coens. Uh, actually, the Coen brothers got their start with Sam Raimi. Uh, Joel Cohen was the uh, assistant editor on Sam Raimi's uh, feature film debut, The Evil Dead. So Sam Raimi became like kind of like the premier cult director and then after he did the Evil Dead trilogy, um, got a couple of somewhat big Hollywood pictures, uh, Dark Man, uh, Quick and the Dead with Sharon Stone and Leonardo DiCaprio, Russell Crowe, and Gene Hackman. And uh, he was really known as like an inventive, high-energy, stylish director, but he hadn't really done any movies that were kind of quiet and subdued and were more like character studies. Um, so Simple Plan was really a break from all the movies that he had done prior to that. And then um, he went on to do the Spider-Man trilogy. Uh, Simple Plan, in my opinion, is one of his finest films. And um, it really is, uh, I think, a movie where he toned down his stylishness and let the... Uh, actors and the, the the story breathed a little bit you know you had pretty big names like billy bob thornton was really hot at the time uh bill paxton bridget fonda and very much like fargo um and actually simple plan even more i think it you know would fall into that genre of neo-noir films um and uh takes place in very wintry setting snow on the ground actually sam raimi consulted the coen brothers about shooting civil plan because they had just got done with fargo so he was wanting to get their advice on shooting in the snow and the look of the film uh, the movie basically is again a very simple plot much like fargo you have uh bill paxton and billy bob thornton who are brothers but both very different bill paxton is Married to Bridget Fonda, has a full-time job working at a feed mill store. His brother, Billy Bob Thornton, 
is kind of lives in a shack with his dog, um, his best friends with a guy who is sort of like somewhat of an out of work alcoholic. Bill, Bill Paxton, Billy Bob Thornton, and Billy Bob Thornton's th- friend are all out. They're taking a ride and they almost hit this fox. So they decide to go after the fox. And so while they're tracking this fox, they come across a crashed small two passenger plane. Uh, the pilot is no longer alive. It looks like this plane has been down for a while. Um, and then inside the plane, they find a briefcase full of $4 million in cash. So immediately the plot kicks off of what they're going to do with the money. Bill Paxson's character is the sort of straight edge kind of guy. And he's like, well, we should just call the cops. And then they start saying, well, why do we need to do this? Is like found money. It's probably a drug dealer's money. So Bill Paxson said, the only way, the only way I'm going to do this is if I can hold the money and then we'll wait till the snow thaws. We'll wait till they find the plane. And then if they don't mention the money, then we'll divvy it up. So naturally, uh, things start to go wrong almost immediately. Um, They all make a pact to say that they're not going to tell anybody else about this. But as soon as Bill Paxton gets home, he lets his wife, played by Bridget Fonda, know what's going on with the money. And then immediately she's got some plans about what they should do and how they should hide it and try to keep things safe. And um, what starts out as like a simple plot sort of escalates and... Same way with Fargo, like with murder, killings, they're trying to can hide the fact that they have this money. And when people start to find out what's going on, all the characters are like pushed to the edge and do things that they normally wouldn't do. I don't want to give out too many spoilers, but it definitely gets pretty dark. And much like Fargo, it's an ensemble cast working together. Um, Bill Paxton is great. Uh, I love Bill Paxton. I think this is one of his like best performances. He really has shed all of his mean-spirited bullying character. This is his most, one of his more endearing and submissive type characters, like where he's kind of the everyman. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton is fantastic in this movie. He can really play that redneck character to a T, and I think he plays like a different variation of the character they played in Sling Blade, this sort of simpleton but also has like a little bit of heart. And what I love about movies like this is it makes you question what you would do. Like if you found $4 million, you know, how would you handle it? Would you call the cops? Would you keep it? And it's a movie that, you know, you watch and it makes you want to stop and say, well, I have it pretty good, but like would money make my life better? Would it make things easier? It makes you question like, well, is it really worth it? And this movie really, I don't, I don't think, uh, gets really deep into that, but it really kind of hones in on the theme of, is it something that was going to make you happier or is your life already good? So there's a lot of things that makes you question like morals and how we live our lives and and, in regards to money and its importance. Again, a very simple plot, but like all these little intricacies and it's a great character study. And I think it's got a fantastic ending. I really, from start to finish this movie, there's no wasted moments. Um, Everything is building on the plot. And to me, it's one of Sam Raimi's best films. This one uh, did not do well. It was kind of a bomb at the box office. Uh, Kind of just really like came and went. It's one that I feel I never hear mentioned. I never hear anyone talk about it. Um, If you're looking for like a really tight crime thriller, Um, character study this is perfect and it's one 
another movie that I go to during the winter season. I just love it so much. I don't know why, but like it, it sticks out in my head is like, oh yeah, you should have seen a simple plan for, you know, this and this reason. But um, character study is like one of my favorite reasons to watch a movie when it's something that's so, um, like, what would you do in this situation? That's a that's a really good pick. I hadn't thought of that movie in a while. And uh, just a shout out, the mom from Freaks and Geeks has like a small <laughs> role in this. It's great, and I love yeah. her so much. Yeah, good shout out, Becky Ann Baker. Nice, that's a great pick. Thanks. Well, I, I slipped you the DVD there, so I'm um, planning on watching it tonight. And I mean, if if we wrap up here, I, I probably am going to watch it tonight. Okay. So, so your pick of the week was uh, a much non-weather related movie (laughs) sunny california yeah uh, laurel canyon which is a neighborhood in los angeles it is what can you tell me about laurel canyon well not much about the neighborhood but the movie (laughs) so i wanted to stick with the theme this uh francis mcdormand love that we've had this whole episode so i did opt for laurel canyon canyon which is the uh most recent pick of the week we've talked about that being from 2002 oh i hope that's okay hope we don't get voted off the island for it um okay so laurel canyon the um clashing of cultures is not an uncommon story in films but when it's in an intimate setting involving family or romantic relationships the details can really get juicy sometimes so in this movie christian bale plays an uptight recent Harvard med school grad along with his dissertation finishing fiance played by Kate Beckinsale uh, who decide to relocate and temporarily move in with Bale's mother. Playing his mother is Frances McDormand, a um, famously free-spirited, well-established record producer who's in the middle of recording an album for a band that could easily double for Coldplay um, at her home studio. So, in essence, Laurel Canyon is, a, is about putting two control freaks into a setting where they are very much not in control. They're introduced to people who aren't fake, who are sexually open, who say what they mean and aren't bound to the confines of, of what they believe they should or shouldn't do in life. For Beckinsale's character, she's thrust into a world she's never known, and but she is really all shades of curious and oddly willing to indulge. While Bale is um, doing everything possible to reject his mother's lifestyle and instead work even harder to live this career-driven, uptight life that Beckinsale is, is somewhat trying to break free of or at least explore a little bit. So they're kind of moving in opposite directions. What makes this movie really engaging for me are the performances. I'm constantly amazed by Frances McDormand and her ability to shift into so many different characters throughout her entire career. Like the the woman's astonishing. I'm I I, I said I wouldn't gush, so I'm gonna temper it a little bit here, but she's amazing. Okay, one more thing. One more thing. In this role in particular with Laurel Canyon, she does take a somewhat uncommon turn i think we're used to seeing her playing like a very strong i'd say pretty strong and not all roles but a lot of them but um she does kind of take this uncommon turn in laurel canyon 
and she's a complete babe. <laughs> she's a brilliant, independent, hardened, beautiful babe, I'd say, in Laurel Canyon. Anyone that has a crush on Frances McDormand will often cite Laurel Canyon as being like, yeah, you seen that movie? Yeah, she's hot. Anyway, she's also a great character, too. It's just like you don't really see her being as uh, sexually open, we should say. Okay, I did gush, didn't I? Sorry. Um, I'm going to bring it back to Christian Bale, um, whose performance in this movie is is painful, but because you see his seething anger that he has toward this mom and his the, the rigidity that is instilled in him because of it, his repression is almost scary. Um, and this is the second Kate Beckinsale pick of the week I've talked about, so I guess I really like her too. Um, she's uniquely quiet in this role, but just looking, um, or her character is really just looking for a reason to let go. And as her character says, um, she's never really learned how to fuck up. And I think that that's something we don't really see, or at least see a character admit a lot is like, they don't really know how to screw up in their life and that she finally comes to, um, it's a moment in the movie, in the movie that's, that's pretty cool. There, there aren't many moments until the very end where we see these explosions of feelings. And it's kind of like you spend the entire movie waiting for that to happen. It's pretty worth mentioning that this film is uh, directed by Lisa Choladenko, the same director as the 1998 independent film High Art, which maybe some of you have seen. Um, Justin, I think we've talked about High Art before. It's a super powerful, amazingly well done film and kind of somewhat similar to Laurel Canyon. I hadn't thought about this before until I realized it was the same director. High Art is about a straight woman that's taken out of her uptight lifestyle and lets herself sink into the idea of having an affair with a female artist. Choladenko also directed the equally fabulous The Kids Are All Right, um, again toying with the idea of what happens when a lesbian goes outside her comfort zone, temporarily loses herself, and has an affair with a man. Um, there's also a touch of queerness in Laurel Canyon as McDormand uh, plays a bisexual woman, um, who does have a few makeouts with her son's fiance? Yeah, you heard that right. She does make out with Kate Beckinsale, so putting that out there. Although similar in some respects, the messages of Laurel Canyon, High Art, and The Kids Are All Right are vastly different. Um, but it's still kind of cool to notice what makes them similar, maybe even showing that. We all experience the same things, just in different capacities, no matter who we are. There isn't too much resolution at the end of Laurel Canyon. Like, Beckinsale and Bale have cheated on each other by the end of this movie. We don't know if they stay together, but it sure has opened up an explosive conversation that we've waited the entire movie for it to happen. We've been desperately wanting them to be honest with each other. We know that McDormand will never change as a mom, nor should she. She's been this way her whole life. But she and Bale finally have a come-to-Jesus moment and start talking about their mother-son relationship. So did we make any progress? Was there any lesson learned in this movie? I'm not really here to say that, but 
this movie could certainly open up some lines of dialogue about human relationships. And if you like movies about the complexity of human communication, this one's definitely a winner. And Frances McDormand totally rules as like this Joni Mitchell, Linda Perry type record producer. So that's kind of fun too. I just love seeing her in a role that we don't normally see her in. And you've seen this one, right, Justin? It's been a while, but I have seen it. Um, but I do remember it being this sort of different uh, character for Frances McDormand, yeah. like a little more sexual, yeah. a little more um, open, not uh, sort of opposite of the character she had played. Um, it's one I really want to revisit. I hadn't really thought about this movie in a long time until you brought it up. I'd say it's it's not exactly like a groundbreaking movie or anything like that, but it's very... It's very entertaining. The story aside, it, it's the performances and the relationships that, that really make this this story interesting. So that's why I like it. I've watched it numerous times, so it's uh, it's always engaging for me. That was a good pick. It's one I want to revisit now. I, I, I saw it when it first came out on video, I think, and mm-hmm. just sort of one of those like small films that I'd like to check it out again. Yeah. I'll give you my uh, Amazon video password. I'll, t- and, I'll take you know, it. Yeah. Man, my dog cannot stop whining into the microphone. <laughs> Thank you, B. Thank you, Beaver. Well, uh, let's go on to, we'll take this moment. I know I said this in the beginning, but. Justin Hayward's Justin back, Justin Hayward right? is back. Yeah. And I love it when he comes on the show. One of my uh, oldest and dearest friends. I rarely get to see him in the flesh. Um, he lives in Chicago, but we never fail to talk on the phone once a week just about movies. That's adorable. <laughs> I mean, it just it's it's like if, if the phone rings and I see it's his name on my caller ID. It's I know we're about to get into a discussion, <laughs> a one hour discussion on movies. I never get tired of know. what he has to say. Yeah, he just uh, constantly has uh, great insight on movies he's always giving me ideas of just movies i haven't thought of and also a great filmmaker to boot he's really a great cinematographer great filmmaker um so i'm interested what he's going to come up with for his uh segment so we'll uh take you to justin hayward talking about fargo take it away justin It was pretty hard to narrow down what I wanted to discuss regarding the masterpiece film, in my opinion, Fargo. But one aspect kept coming back to me, and that was the stunning, meticulous, dynamic, but also shrewdly subtle cinematography by one of the truly great cinematographers of our time, Mr. Roger Deakins. And in this segment, I want to focus on the unique way he sometimes handles lighting scenes, in particular night exterior sequences. First of all, for those of you that don't know, a cinematographer is the person in charge of the camera work on a movie. That job involves being in charge of the shot compositions and how they're lit for the mood of the story. The lighting of a scene can be critical to how the audience feels when watching. Think of the cliche of telling ghost stories before bed at night. It's probably not as scary with the big overhead LED fan light on as it is in the dark holding a flashlight below your chin, creating that creepy lighting effect on your face. It's the same thing with lighting scenes in a movie, just on a bigger scale. In my opinion, I find the lighting one of the strongest tools in the filmmaker's arsenal to elicit an emotion from an audience. Of course, the same goes with shot composition and camera movement, 
but let's focus on lighting for now. The level of control the cinematographer has in all of this is subjective to any individual production. Some directors are very involved with the camera work. Martin Scorsese picks all of his shots, but allows the cinematographer a lot of freedom in the lighting of the scenes. Most people credit the look of Blade Runner to the director Ridley Scott, but Ridley Scott is a notorious visual artist and is extremely involved in every single aspect regarding the look and design of his films. I read somewhere he drew up the blueprints for his own house while directing on the set of Gladiator. I don't doubt it. I've also talked to directors that allow the cinematographer complete control of the look of the movie while they focus solely on the actor's performances. None of this are hard and fast rules, but the official job description of a cinematographer is the person in charge of the camera and lighting. That's why cinematographers are also called the Director of Photography, or DP for short. They direct the photography of the movie in a partnership with the overall director of the movie. A production designer designs the sets, a costume designer designs the costumes, a screenwriter writes the screenplay, and a director of photography directs the photography. Okay, now that you know what a cinematographer does, I want to get into a specific scene in Fargo and how Roger Deakins chose to light it. Now, I don't know for sure if he chose to light the scene this way and that the Coen brothers didn't specifically tell him to light the scene this way, but because he has lit night exterior scenes before and after Fargo in this style, I'm going to assume the scene was lit this way at his suggestion. Before I get into this, I need to give a very explicit warning that this scene is extremely violent and very, very disturbing to watch, in my opinion. So if you're new to this movie and haven't seen what I'm talking about, take an account of your movie watching history and decide if extreme violence between fellow human beings is something you can handle before you watch this specific scene. Ah, okay, here we go. It's the scene in the movie where Steve Buscemi's character and his partner, played by the great character actor Peter Stormare, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, are pulled over by a police officer on a dark highway in the middle of the night. At this point, spoilers, they have already kidnapped William Macy's wife's character and have her tied up in the trunk of the car. So when the police officer pulls them over for not having the proper license plate, they both know he could hear the woman in the trunk and they'd be caught and arrested. That's when Stormare's character shoots the police officer in the head. Yikes. Then as they are dragging the body across the highway, an innocent couple happens to drive by and sees everything going on on. Killer tracks them down in the darkness of the night and kills both witnesses. It's a dark and scary scene. Before I break down the lighting in this scene, I want to give an overall context of night exterior lighting throughout filmmaking history. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, cinematographers shot vast night exteriors day for night. What that means is they shot the scene on a bright, sunny day, but underexposed the film so dark that the sunlight looks like moonlight and the shadows went totally black. Think of the big David Lean movies from the 50s, like The Bridge on the River Kwai, or The Vast Deserts of Lawrence of Arabia. There were no lights then, and there are no lights now that can light all of that desert real estate at night. So they shot during the day, and through exposure and printing, color timed the film to look very blue and darken it to look very night. The combination of the dark image and the blue color gave the appearance of a night look. There are two big problems with shooting day for night. One is the moment you see the sky, the effect is ruined. No matter how much you darken the image, that big blue sky with its puffy white clouds will never appear to look like a vast night starry sky. Of course, nowadays we can replace skies with computers, so it's a little better. But the other problem with shooting day for night is you can't use any practical lights in the frame. No flashlights, no car lights, or street lamps. By the time you darken the frame enough for the sunlight to look like moonlight, any practical lights will disappear into the darkness. But despite these issues, filmmakers still occasionally use the day-for-night technique. The last time I remember seeing it was on the latest Mad Max Fury Road movie, but as cool as that movie is, the day-for-night just looked like a really blue version of daylight to me. But these days, when a scene is supposed to take place at night, filmmakers will usually shoot at night and light the scene with what I'll call for simplistic purposes, movie lights. 
big lights that are used for movies. I don't want to get into any more description than that, or my segment will be longer than the rest of this podcast. But you all know what I'm talking about. Anyway, it's common to employ some sort of moonlit feel, even if it doesn't go as far as the eye can see. That's usually one big or sometimes several big movie lights far away on a scissor lift or some platform that can be raised very high in the air. They rake as much of the shooting space with, quote, moonlight as they can. Sometimes they'll put a blue gel on the lights to emulate a cold feel of the moon. Sometimes instead of moonlight, filmmakers will augment street lights or storefront lights with any number of lights to illuminate the exterior set that is usually too dark to show up on camera. Sometimes they'll even spray the street with water. So everything becomes very reflective, and the movie lights and the practical lights are reflecting on the streets and sidewalks, and suddenly the set is as lit up as downtown Chicago at Christmas. Point is... There are many ways filmmakers will illuminate night scenes, but most of the time they will light up the surrounding areas with artificial lights that mostly don't look like a normal street, but instead a movie-lit street. The scene in Fargo we are discussing is not like any of that. Roger Deakins does something very unusual for traditional movie lighting in lighting this particular night exterior. The scene is lit entirely by the car headlights, no artificial moonlight, which could have applied here because they are basically supposed to be in the middle of nowhere, and no additional artificial light from anything other than the practical lights we see in the scene. Sure, Mr. Deakins most likely augmented the headlights with movie lights to either brighten the effect or add highlights here and there, but it never feels like there is any artificial light in the frame other than the car headlights and the flashing police lights. For instance, if the headlights from the police car aren't bright enough to light up the inside of Steve Buscemi's car, then maybe Mr. Deakins could have added an additional movie light next to the car headlights that's doing the same thing as the headlights, but doing it brighter or with a further throw. One time I saw a DP put a three-corner triangle mirror attached to a power drill. He took two movie lights, gelling one of them red and the other one blue, and pointed them at the three-piece mirror. Then he ran the power drill, which spun the mirror and flashed a very bright red and blue light all over the set which emulated police car headlights. Things like that may have been applied in this scene, but whatever they did, they didn't break away from making the whole scene feel like it's only lit by two cars. Even the light across Steve Buscemi's eyes are from the reflection of the police car headlights into Steve Buscemi's rearview mirror. They take this concept even further when Peter Stormare's character chases down the two witnesses into the dark snowy night. All we see are Stormare's headlights and the witnesses' red taillights and blackness surrounding it all. Then suddenly the red taillights just disappear. Then, as Stormare's character gets closer, we realize the witness's car actually drove off the road into the ditch. That's something we would have seen happen if Deacons had lit this scene like a normally lit night exterior. But only seeing the car lights totally amps up the intensity of this scene, in my opinion. It's car lights surrounded by mystery, which makes this scene stunning. The darkness around them implies the helplessness of all the victims. They're miles away from anyone that could possibly help them, which causes me to find the scene to be even more horrifying than it already is, simply by the way Deacons chose to light it. But also, and probably more important, the way he chose not to light it. Well, thanks again, uh, Justin. Um, yeah, can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I love that um, man's taking the brain. time to uh, uh, give us your um, insights on these films that we're doing. Always something that uh, I haven't thought of, you know. So I appreciate it so much. Yeah, thank um, you. Well, uh, we're running out of time here, so uh, we'll go right into it. This is your Murray moment. Because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root 
You're gonna compensate by a monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shocked? The flowing robes embrace all striking. The final scene of Fargo ends with Frances McDormand stunned about what she's seen humans do, what they're capable of. She's grown, she's become a little harder, but what she can always return to is her husband, Norm, to feel normal again. This scene at the end of the movie made me remember a similarly staged ending of the four-part HBO miniseries called Olive Kittredge, which also starred McDormand. And wouldn't you know it, at the end, there's a Murray surprise. Director Wes Anderson once said that he had a vision of McDormand and Billy playing opposite each other, and with Moonrise Kingdom, he was able to make that come to fruition. The two play a distant married couple. McDormand's character is having an affair with another man, and Billy's character becomes hip to it and doesn't really know how to responsibly confront the problem. Now, while I love these performances in Moonrise Kingdom, and they play wonderfully off of each other, but their emotional distance um, has the most heart and is the most meaningfully honest, I feel like, in Olive Kittredge, which is also um, directed by uh, uh, Lisa Choladenko, who did my pick of the week, Laurel Canyon. Um, Kind of funny coincidence. While Billy's planted earlier in the series, he doesn't actually hold a significant role as the character of Jack until the final episode when Olive runs across him um, while walking her dog. She finds him splayed out in the middle of a deep woods walking path. Jack can't find a reason to live ever since his wife passed away. Olive can identify. Her husband passes away earlier in the episode. Give me a reason to wake up in the morning, Jack asks Olive. Don't have a clue, she responds. I'm just waiting for the dog to die so I can shoot myself. Although this is a sarcastic comment that makes Jack laugh, she's not kidding. I know we're no stranger to seeing Billy play a depressed, slightly sardonic role of a guy who's forever comfortable in his own misery. Um, We've seen him play straightforward, serious characters uh, many times later in his career. But this role's different. He's heartbroken. He feels like a ghost. What's the point of living when you've been living for your sick partner all these years? What do you do once they're gone? Jack lost his wife to cancer. Olive lost her husband to a stroke. You can pretty much see how these two might form a bond. Once they're gone, their flaws just disappear, don't they? Jack says to Olive. For the most part, the entire series is based around Olive's inability to warm up to anyone, to open up. She's curt, she's rude, but at least her brutal honesty is admirable. If you're me, it is anyway. When Olive meets Jack, we instantly understand that these two are cut from the same cloth. When we're introduced to Jack earlier in the episode, he's portrayed as a disconnected husband while his wife is personable and warm, much like Olive and her relationship with her loving husband. I won't spoil what happens between Jack and Olive in the last 30 minutes of the show, But I will say that there's significant story development in their relationship, and it's not solely just a chance meeting in the woods. Like I said, the miniseries ends in the same way as Fargo, McDormand laying on her male counterpart. 
although both stories are vastly different, um, both end on this kind of hopeful note, although Kittredge is more somber, respectively. She was serious when she told Jack she was waiting for a dog to die, that she was really ready to off herself once that happened. And Olive thought she was prepared to do it, and Billy's character might as well be dead. But it seems as if this chance meeting between these two was exactly what they both needed to pull themselves out of the darkness. Billy once said of McDormand, Talk about a no-bullshit actress. No frills. She's just so effortless. And this couldn't be more evident than her performance in Olive Kittredge. And the same could really be said for Billy. They're both unflappable in these roles. Probably um, the reason they both were nominated for Golden Globes and ended up both walking away winning Emmys for their performances in the series, too. In the show's final moments, they confess to each other how they were terrible partners to their deceased spouses. It's a really powerful scene and a place in which I really believe that Billy hasn't gone um, at this point in his career anyway that I can remember off the top of my head right now. Um, and I tell you, if if you or anyone you've ever cared about has ever lost someone or felt disconnected or just damaged and don't know how to come out of it, Olive Kittredge may just be something you should watch. And then it ends on a slightly hopeful note with Billy and McDormand in this embrace that's comforting and also sad at the same time. It may just be something that might warm the coldest of hearts. I don't know. Justin, have you seen this? I don't, I don't think we've ever talked about it. I don't think you have. I've never seen it. Yeah. It, w- it was one that like it got a lot of recognition, but I don't I only know like one person that I've asked about it that's seen it. And the person I asked it, or the person I was talking about it to was like, oh, my God. Yeah, I totally love that. But anyone else I brought it up to has never heard of it before. I'm, I'm very curious already. Do you have it that I can check it out? Um, so uh, I did recently purchase it on uh, Amazon. So along with Laurel Canyon, you can watch it on there too. All right. I'm if you it. also want to watch the documentary behind the Jean Benet Ramsey killing, you can. That's also on my Amazon I would Prime. Totally watch that. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, I know that that was like kind of a Murray moment recommendation, but I felt like, like I didn't discover that until it was well after, I mean, that was 2014. So, and it's four years later, I didn't discover that until well after it was out. So, you know, it might've just been something that, that slipped by if you're a Bill Murray fan, but I love his performance in that. And, uh, and Francis McDormand's great. And, it just seemed appropriate for this. No, I'm I'm excited. I know nothing about that, so I'm I'm extremely intrigued. You should watch it. It's not. Uh, he's not going to make you laugh. So if you're okay. looking for a Bill Murray laugh moment, it's not going to happen. I, I feel like I've I've I've, been, I've come pretty used to the yeah. dramatic side of Bill Murray. So yeah, um, yeah when's that man going to like return to some like meatballs type of humor? Is yeah. that going to happen ever? I don't know. I don't think it is. I think it would have. I don't think it's going to happen. He might pull one out. Maybe. But I think that was Zombie Land. That was the yeah, last one. <laughs> yeah, that was the only second, but I'll take what I can get. Yeah. So thanks again, as always, for that Murray moment. Of course. Happy. Um, happy to do it. So really, we're keeping it 90s movies for the next episode. 
Mm-hmm. We're going to bring you out of that seasonal depression yeah. you might be in. Um, we're going with, uh, really, I, I don't know. I put it up there. I don't know. All these movies are some of my favorite movies. I mean, but that's kind yeah, of why we do but, this. Yeah. But I, but I love Scorsese so much, <laughs> and I'm excited that we're going to be doing Martin Scorsese's Casino. I'm for excited the next. for a Scorsese movie that we're doing this one. Yeah. 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 So, Casino, starring Casino. Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci, a favorite of the podcast. Oh, it's true. Yeah. yeah. And Sharon Stone. Yeah. Uh, so, that'll be coming up for you next time. Um, as always, you can always find us on Instagrams, where we do Instagrams? Most... Are there multiple grams? Come on. You know what I mean. <laughs> We're our most active on Instagram. Yes. And but you can also find us on the Facebooks. <laughs> don't push pause podcast. Um, you can also uh, check us out on our website. Don't push pause We're also on Twitter. It is a uh, humble oh. beginning. I All know right. you forget. We have. I forgot. You're on the Twitters. I'm trying, okay? Yeah. I'm trying. So I left that all up to you. Most of our social media stuff is I've left entirely up to you. Way to tell everybody. You're younger than me, that. so you got more. You you know what the kids are thinking. You're you've you're on the pulse of, of what people are what's going on out there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. I'm really uh, tr- trying yeah. to get a get a new tweet out there, yeah. kids. So uh give us a follow. But if you ever <laughs> if you want <laughs> If you also want to contact us directly, you can reach us at don't push pause podcast at gmail.com. Um, so yeah, looking forward to another episode. We'll see you in a few weeks until next time. I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Raber. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.